1: Still looking pretty tense down there on the uh, Texas-Mexico border. So I guess uh, I probably better eat some crow today, and, and I have to give credit where credit's due. Not only did uh, Brad Little, the governor of Idaho, but also Spencer Cox, the governor of Utah, extended their support to uh, Governor Greg Abbott of Texas in standing up to the Biden administration and uh, basically taking steps to prevent a continued invasion across the southern border. And you know, I, I, I got to give them credit. I didn't think these guys would have the backbone to do it. As of the time of this broadcast, twenty five states have basically stood up and said, "Texas, we are with you." Many of them actually offering to send either men or material to uh, to help Texas assert its right to protect its borders. And I, you know, I hate. Hyperbole. I don't like to see, you know, uh, I don't like to see things described in terms that don't accurately describe what's going on. And I've shied away from the term invasion just because it's a, that's a very laden term, you know, that, uh, I mean, that's warlike talk, right? Well, it's an invasion. we got to repel invasions and so forth. But the more I have looked at this and not just, you know, in the last couple of days, but over, over the last few months and actually the last couple of years, I'm becoming convinced that this is not an accident that we have not just thousands, but millions of foreign nationals pouring in across that southern border, many of them from regions that are that are hostile to the U.S. And there's an I know there's a number of different, you know, doomsday scenarios. And I'm not I'm not trying to spread doom. I'm just saying the number of military age men who seem to be finding their way across that southern border is is staggering, there's an old saying out there about, you know, if you if you're going to uh, if you're looking for a better life, you take the wife and kids with you, right? The women and children would be coming with them if it was simply about hey, we're just coming here to to live the American dream. But if you're going to war, you leave the wife and kids behind. And that's the part that again, it's I'm not saying that's exactly what's happening. I'm just saying the appearance is there enough that that I think that's a, that's a fair question to ask. Now, I'm also grateful Just to see, you know, a tiny spark of life in that concept of federalism where the states retain rights. After all, the federal government is a creation of the states. I'm not sure where it suddenly, you know, became the master of the states. Well, actually, Mr. Lincoln, you want to comment on how that happened? (laughs) Nonetheless, um... This is the situation we find ourselves in. And apparently there's some kind of a deadline today, Biden administration. So you will let those border patrol people in to take down that, that uh, barbed wire, that razor wire. And uh, I don't think Texas is going to budge. I don't know if this is, you know, this is going to be our fourth sumter moment or whatever. But it is, it's a very interesting time and probably, you know, probably fraught with just a little bit of, of danger as well. But it's long overdue. For the states to start to stand up to that federal leviathan. And if there's some place where pressure is going to be applied from the federal level, I don't think it's going to come in the threat of, you know, we're going to send troops, we'll send drones, we'll, we'll go to war with you. It's an election year, after all. I mean, they don't want the mask to come off entirely, at least not until after the election. Especially if they can figure out a way to steal this one, too. So... Probably it'll come in the form of of financial pressure. Well, it'd be a shame if all those federal funds, you know, were to suddenly be withheld, right? Yeah, that's uh, that's just the way it goes. At any rate, it's a it's a fascinating time, and uh, if if you've got a little bit of pucker factor, you're not alone. There's good reason. By the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna start on a subject here that. Uh, that's, that's a pretty heavy one, but it's also kind of the top-of-the-mind thing that's going on for a lot of people. But I want to give you some good news, okay? This is this is the good news. There's, there's an emergency brewing on the southern border there in Texas, okay? Fine. We know that power seekers love emergencies because emergencies provide them with the cover they need to grab as much power as possible. So are you ready for some good news? A federal court judge in Canada has just pulled Canada back from the brink by ruling that the Canadian government's use of the Emergencies Act was unlawful. This is from a couple of years ago when the trucker's convoy was making its way across Canada. Well, this judge said that the trucker convoy did not constitute a national emergency. So Justin Trudeau, when he hit the panic button and activated the military and, you know, uh, the, the state police or whatever the Canadian equivalent is, he was he was looking for a reason to crack down with authoritarian rule and it's it's sickening how many individuals clicked their heels and went to town on these protesters who were tired of being locked down and bossed around by a man-child who really didn't know what he was doing. Now the federal court decision according to the story I'm looking at this is from the Brownstone Institute contains four conclusions, two prerequisites for invoking the Emergencies Act said Justice Richard Mosley were not met. Moreover, the two regulations issued under it were unconstitutional. Predictably, the government has promised to appeal, but for the government to prevail, an appeal panel would have to overturn all four. Now, apparently, there's also a wrinkle here between 1963 and 1970, the Front de Libération de Québec, or FLQ, a separatist organization in Quebec, committed bombings, robberies, and killed several people. October 1970, they kidnapped British Trade Commissioner James Cross, then kidnapped and killed Pierre Laporte, a minister in the Quebec government. In response, Pierre Trudeau's government invoked the War Measures Act, the only time it had been used in peacetime. In the years that followed, the invocation of the act became regarded as a dangerous overreach of government powers and breach of civil liberties. Now, the Emergencies Act, enacted in 1988 to replace the War Measures Act, had higher thresholds. In other words, it should have been more difficult for governments to trigger. Before COVID and the trucker convoy, it had never been used. That does put kind of an interesting perspective. So the Freedom Convoy arrived at Parliament Hill in Ottawa, January 29, 2022, to protest COVID vaccine mandates. The truckers parked unlawfully in downtown Ottawa. They violated parking bylaws and probably the Highway Traffic Act. And authorities could have issued tickets and towed the trucks away, but they didn't. In the meantime, protests in other parts of the country emerged. Trucks blocked border crossings in Coots, Alberta, and also the Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, Ontario. Local and provincial law enforcement dealt with those protests and cleared the borders. By February 15th, when Justin Trudeau's government declared a public order emergency and invoked the Emergencies Act, only the Ottawa protests had not been resolved. Huh. Well, that's fascinating. But those were the ones, I guess, closest to where Trudeau was, so he was probably wetting his pants trying to figure out how can I spin this and and maintain control. Now, the government issued two regulations under the act, one prohibited public assemblies that may be reasonably expected to lead to a breach of the peace. Okay, that's pretty broad. The other one outlawed donations and authorized banks to freeze donors' bank accounts. And on February 18th and 19th, police brandishing riot batons descended on the crowd. They arrested close to 200 people, broke truck windows and unleashed the occasional burst of pepper spray. By the evening of the 19th, they had cleared the trucker encampment away. Banks froze the accounts and credit cards of hundreds of supporters. On February 23rd, the government revoked the regulations and use of the Act. Now, governments can't use the Emergency Act unless its prerequisites are met. A public order emergency must be a national emergency and a threat to the security of Canada, both of which are defined in the Act. A national emergency exists only if the situation cannot be dealt, effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. Threats to the security of Canada can be one of several things. The government relied upon the clause that requires activities directed toward or in support of the threat or use of serious acts of violence against persons or property for the purpose of achieving a political, religious, or ideological objective. You understand what's being said here? The trucker protests were neither a national emergency. Justice Mosley concluded, nor a threat to the security of Canada. So there was no national emergency. A threat to the security of Canada did not exist. There are quotes from the justice there. I'm sure that's small consolation to the people whose accounts were frozen or whose property was confiscated or those who actually went to jail for standing up for their natural rights. These are the times we live in. I mean, it's good to see that finally there's a justice who has stepped up and said, hey, that wasn't correct. But I think we all know that the only way to really truly prevent that kind of abuse of power from taking place again is to peacefully separate those who abused power from power and to make it permanent, ban them from holding office, ban them from holding any position of authority for the rest of their lives. If they persist... If they start to invoke violence as a way to hang on to power. All right, well then, Nuremberg tribunals may be the appropriate remedy. But right now, we don't see a whole lot of those people who made those kind of awful decisions being held accountable. They haven't been separated from power, and that's, that's a concern.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out to my sponsors who make this program possible. They include Ironsight Brewing Company. That's ironsightbc.com. It's a subscription coffee service. If you are a coffee aficionado, I think you ought to check them out. Go to my show notes at the thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the link that I provide and uh, it'll take you right to them. You can check it out for yourself. Look, I, I'm not a coffee drinker myself, but I do love the smell of it. And uh, when they say, from the roaster to your cup in less than 72 hours, I understand that's kind of a big deal to people who, who know their coffee. So I, I feel like I started out on, uh, on kind of a, a negative note in the sense that there's, there's some pretty intense stuff taking place. And yes, I feel like we do need to acknowledge that. Let's, let's shift gears for just a moment. And talk about some some really useful advice. This comes to us courtesy of Barry Brownstein's latest Mindset Shift essay. And it is a must-read on breaking love's code. And now, the subtitle here says, Our swirl of mental activity drowns out what's essential. And, and this really hit home for me. There's a lot going on. There's a lot that uh, competes for our attention. So much so, in fact, that it can be very easy for us to miss things that are of extreme importance. Now, it's funny, he harkens back to the story of British pioneering computer scientist Alan Turing and his team at Bletchley Park that changed the course of World War II when they broke the Nazi Enigma code. I actually just watched the, uh, the movie about this, uh, what was it called? The, the Imitation Game. Fantastic show, by the way. Some of Turing's uh, superiors, Barry reports, had scoffed at his unorthodox methods and thought his time and resources invested in code breaking were a waste. His commander, Alistair Denniston, told the head of naval intelligence, "You know the British, or I mean the Germans, don't mean you to read their stuff, and I don't expect you ever will." Facing resistance, Turing took the very unusual step of appealing directly to Winston Churchill. In his appeal, he wrote, "It is very difficult to bring home to the authorities." Finally responsible, either the importance of what is done here or the urgent necessity of dealing promptly with our requests. Churchill recognized the urgency of the code breaking work. Action this day, he directed Chief of Staff General Hastings Ismay. Make sure they have all they want on extreme priority and report to me that this has been done. Now, at the time Turing made his appeal, attempts to break the Enigma code were failing. The German code changed each day. Turing realized the British code-breaking machine was at a disadvantage. All combinations were being searched, and there was insufficient processing power to complete the search in a day. But the breakthrough came when Turing realized certain words were used at the beginning and ending of each message. In the movie version of Turing's efforts, the imitation game, Turing finds a new direction. What if Christopher, that's the name given to the code-breaking machine in the movie, doesn't have to search through all of the settings. What if he only has to search for ones that produce words we already know will be in the message? Repeated words, predictable words, the weather and Heil Hitler. Many of us go through the day with a jumble of messages passing through our heads. And Barry says, like Turing and his team, we may search for messages that will clarify our course of action. Days end and we feel we didn't accomplish what needed to be done. Years go by and we still search for a purpose in our life. We search, feeling exhausted and dispirited. And so he asks, "What if our problem like that of the Bletchley Park Code is like that of the Bletchley Park Codebreakers? Are we searching for all possibilities? How many thoughts in our heads are false messages that could be dismissed? Now here he gives some really interesting examples. Many thoughts take the form of, "I need more of this and less of that." What if these messages are mostly senseless? What if our problems are not what we think they are? What if the quality of our life depends on discerning and dismissing irrelevant thoughts? As we will see, Marcus Aurelius trained his mind daily to look past the irrelevant. Now, Barry says Hugh Prather is another author that he works with that mindset shifts you. In his book, How to Live in the World and Still Be Happy, he asks these pointed questions about the many ways we search for all possibilities while ignoring the present. Tell me if this sounds familiar. When will you stop fighting your appearance? When will you enjoy your child? Will there ever be a time in your life to drink in what your friends have to offer? It seems so little, but have you received even that little? When will you first feel a breeze passing over your cheek? Will there finally come a meal in which you will taste, really taste your food? Just where are you going anyway? All you will ever discover about the future is that it remains... The future. So why do you still turn it over and over in your mind like some delicacy? End quote. Barry Brownstein says the ego's swirl of mental activity drowns out what is essential. Yet we mistakenly believe the jumble of messages in our head means something. Our ego has created a logjam with way too much thinking. Inspired ideas cannot get through. The ideas we need most to guide our actions are inspired by our values and purpose, which flow from love. Like Marcus Aurelius, Prather reminds us there is a lot on the line. This life of yours is not an easy habit to break, but do you really wish to continue missing almost everything of value only to end up on your deathbed wondering why you never took the time to love? Prather advises us to invest effort to uncover and examine the beliefs and assumptions directing our approach to life. Quote, we are speaking here of your approach to life. You are not yet approaching it because you have not yet recognized where it lies. Where is happiness found? You have a thousand assumptions about this you have not yet questioned. You are currently living those assumptions. Almost everything you think and do stems from them. That is the way it has always been. It will take enormous effort for you to walk past your ordinary way of doing things. And yet, once you have decided to make the effort and have committed yourself completely, all of it will eventually become surprisingly easy. And so Barry Brownstein asks, could we uncover the essential messages that do not serve the needs of our ego? What if we could find those thoughts that love inspires among the jumble of messages? Could we break love's code? For example, messages from love don't attack. We can ignore attack messages like, I stink because, or you stink because. How do we do that? Well, he says we detect and drop the faulty belief that others cause our feelings. Letting go of false assumptions and beliefs creates the space for love messages to get through. The code breakers were searching for false messages. Notice how many times a day you embrace your own false messages. Here's an example. Here's Edward Bear coming downstairs now bump, bump, bump on the back of his head behind Christopher Robin. It is as far as he knows the only way of coming downstairs, but the moment he feels there is really another way. He feels that there really is another way. If only he could stop bumping for a moment and think of it. That's a quote, by the way, from A.A. Milne and Winnie the Pooh. Barry Brownstein says, take a moment and identify one non-loving, sticky thought about yourself, others, or your circumstances that keeps coming to mind today. Are you willing to let it go? Too often the answer is no. And Prather observes most of us are stubborn. Time and again, I've watched even those who are desperate proceed doggedly ahead with an approach that they know in their hearts will not work. A kind of blind fear takes over. And they convince themselves there's nothing left to try, so they stick with failure to the bitter end. They've lost their natural instinct for knowing when to stop and regain perspective. End quote. Now, Prather adds, a decision must be made. And it can be made now, and it's simply this: I will begin. I have a link to this in today's show notes at thebryanhideshow.com, and this was, this will take you directly to uh, Barry Brownstein's Mindset Shifts essay substack. And I'm going to throw this recommendation out there. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. There's something about the way that Barry writes that uh, I see this not just in, in my own reaction to it, but in the way that others react, where... He he writes in such a way that uh, this is much deeper than just you know some intellectual musings of, of a guy who's been thinking really deeply about things. Um, he has insights that that really cut through to the heart of the matter. Meaning, when you read them, you come away not with a sense of ah yes now I have all the answers, but more with a sense of peace that having found a source of light. At a time when things around us uh, seem to be getting kind of dim, maybe you've noticed that. Anyway, check out the link at the show.com These are show notes for January 26th, 2024. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. this is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'll tell you, man, I woke up this morning with what felt like a doozy of a cold, as in I actually felt like my voice was leaving me. And for just a few moments, I entertained the idea, well, maybe today I take the day off and and don't uh, comment on what's going on. But doggone it, I am a uh, jabbermouth, and I just had to... Give it the old college try, and I'm very happy to see that my voice is stuck with me so far. Knock on wood, it'll it'll hang with me through the end of today's show. So I've been watching again with a lot of interest. Um, in particular, I've been watching uh, some of some of the discomfort being felt by members of uh, how can I put this the the investigative press after the L.A. Times started laying off. I think it was 115 workers. And by the way, tip of the hat to the Babylon Bee. Great headline here. Laid-off LA Times reporter sits on street corner with sign reading, We'll call you racist for food. Yeah, there's a lot to that. And and watching Taylor Lorenz, who is is one of those journalists, I'm putting that in air quotes, who uh, really has just relished The idea that, uh, well, it's our job to destroy those people financially who don't agree with the narrative that we're pushing. I think it was Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, who says, hey, you know, who would have thought that this this would be a terrible business model? Basically, you brainwash people with, with very obvious bull crap and tell them how racist and horrible they are if they question you on it. So it's, it's a much overdue correction in the market. Um, I, I'm not trying to, to stand here and cheer other people's suffering, but at the same time, when, when people who are very openly avowed enemies to your personal liberty and my personal liberty, and when the, when the rug gets pulled out from under them, I have a really hard time feeling like, well, that's a shame. We need to get them right back on the job, you know, putting as much disinformation or spin out there as possible. So don't get me wrong, I'll pray for them, but part of what I'm praying for them is that they use this as an opportunity to see where they sold their soul in a buyer's market and, and hopefully can use this as a learning opportunity. And I don't know, you know, I, I've, I remember the old saying from, from Will Grigg, you know, some people are about six good, stout, butt-whipping shy of being a decent human being. And I think there's truth to that. So maybe this could count as uh, one or more of those butt whippings that these folks need to get their feet back on the ground and to to stop that, uh, that superiority complex that, that would allow them to lie to people and to smear people and try to financially destroy people who simply have different opinions than them. Notice I'm not saying they need to be destroyed themselves. I'm saying... Maybe this is an opportunity for them to reconsider the error of their ways. Now, having said that, learning to sift fact from fiction in our news media requires a willingness to very carefully scrutinize what they say. And I, I saw a recent post here by Michael Herman on his Substack titled By Default. And this is what he means he says the default is always to the left, the starting line is always skewed left. Facts are always predetermined from the viewpoint of the left. And he gives some pretty good examples here. Global warming, though unsettled science and perhaps even based on false data points, is the default accepted as fact in every mainstream media news story. You begin from the position that global warming is an existential threat to all. That's the baseline, the beginning of all discussion. Okay, here's another one. White supremacy is real, it exists, it is factual, and it is causal of all problems faced by minorities in the U.S. There is no dissent, there is no pushback, there is no recognition of this reverse racism. White supremacy is the baseline, the starting point for every story in the mainstream media on disparities between minorities and whites. Oh, except for Asians as a minority because they create real problems for the narrative of white supremacy as they outperform whites inside this system of white supremacy and therefore need to be ignored completely. No story on white supremacy can recognize Asians as a minority. They need to be left out of the conversation completely, so as not to disturb the baseline assumptions and argument. Illegal immigrants fleeing oppressive governments are political dissenters that need to flee their country from political prosecution. They're not just seeking economic opportunity. They all claim that they were forcibly removed from their homes due to political persecution and that is the baseline argument for allowing open borders and mass illegal immigration into the U.S. It is the default of all mainstream media. They will only allow that seeking economic opportunity is a second pursuit of those entering the U.S. illegally. They are political dissidents who need to flee for safety. How about this one? America is a racist country, founded on racist principles, with a racist white population that will not allow minorities access to opportunity. White... Whites have created a system to benefit themselves at the expense of all others. That is the default narrative on every story in the mainstream media. And I can't remember if it was Michael Herman or somebody else who pointed out. So that that poor hillbilly in Appalachia who is addicted to uh, OxyContin and and maybe has lost all of his or her teeth due to, to meth is somehow oppressing Michelle Obama with her $400 million bank account. Sorry, but that's the narrative. That's the default narrative. Here's another one. Abortion on demand is a woman's right. The fact that today, right now in America, the argument that from the left is that women have a right for abortion on demand all the way through the actual birthing process and have a right to terminate the pregnancy even after a full-term live birth is not to be part of the discussion. A woman has bodily autonomy through the full term of the pregnancy. Now, the very fact that this is infanticide, the fact that the left has moved on from any argument over exactly when a fetus becomes a baby, when a zygote forms and becomes a baby, the old argument over an abortion right at six weeks or 12 weeks or 16 weeks has been fully supplanted by the argument that women have bodily autonomy and can abort all the way through the pregnancy on demand. All arguments over abortion rights in the U.S. from the mainstream media must be framed by the left-wing position that the right wants to impose limits on women's reproductive freedoms as the baseline default starting position on discussing abortion. And we can have no discussion on, uh, at all about how the left has moved abortion into infanticide with some argument that after birth, the doctor and mother can sit and decide whether to terminate the pregnancy. Even some leftists would come to the conclusion that such behavior is lunacy, is murder of an infant. So we must not allow any discussion about abortion that brings those realities into the discussion. Republicans are evil, Democrats are good is the baseline for every single article or show in mainstream media. Republicans want to stop all progress in the U.S. Democrats want to move the country forward. This is the absolute default position of all mainstream media discussions and presentations. Any discussion of rigged elections, ballot box stuffing, or cheating in elections is considered to be the domain of conspiracy theorists, no matter the evidence. If you question the integrity of elections, you are bat poop crazy, full stop. No reasonable discussion can be held on anomalies and unique statistical variants in our elections. You cannot point to a rigged election in Pennsylvania or Rhode Island as proof there are problems in the system. And ballots can be recounted, but not examined. Running the same bogus ballots through the machine again and again, yielding the exact same results, is proof there was no election rigging. But no, there is no requirement to further examine those ballots to see if perhaps thousands have the same ink mark or perhaps the machines have some tabulation error favoring one side. Those that question election results are conspiracy theorist extremists. Alex Jones types, tinfoil hat people best ignored. That's the default position on all stories of election results. When Democrats are wrong about an issue, lie about an issue, ignore it completely, move on. If they said masks work and they don't, ignore it as if it never happened. If they said stand six feet apart absent any scientific proof of efficacy, ignore it. If they say over and over, if you get the shot, you can no longer transmit the disease or get the disease, and that proves to be a falsehood, ignore it. If they don't want to acknowledge a lab-leak origin, cooperate fully to denigrate anyone who suggests such a theory is racist, homophobic, xenophobic, and a conspiracy theorist. When Democrats and the left are wrong, ignore the reality completely. When proven wrong, ignore all facts. Promote the lie until it becomes truth. The default position of all mainstream media from ABC, NBC, CBS, cable news networks, CNN, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, for all the media, the default position is always to be stated from the left's standing position. The right must be defeated. The right is wrong. The right is always at fault. Democrats are the party that cares, the party that wants the U.S. to move forward. They are everything that is good with America. I mean, the 51 bureaucrats pen a lie that the laptop from hell is Russian disinformation after the FBI has had five years to verify the contents and knows concretely that the laptop is real and belongs to Hunter and has nothing to do with Russian disinformation. So ignore the story forevermore. That ruse has served its purpose in the cause of election interference, so move on. Our lies in service to the cause are holy and good. everything they say from the Republican side is a lie. Our lies aren't lies they're the language of the benevolent in service to all those in need. That's a pretty effective primer for how to look at mainstream this news is the Brian Hyde show
0: this is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. It's our final segment of today's show. And I think my voice is just barely going to make it. I thank you for your prayers. (laughs) Uh, I do hate uh, some of the colds and stuff that's going around here. And it sounds like influenza A has kind of been uh, taking its toll on people. So stay healthy. I was going to say socially distance and all that, but I also know there's Really no scientific basis at this point. So I didn't realize, but uh, this is National School Choice Week. Now, the very phrase, school choice, uh, really sets some people's teeth on edge. But uh, I have a couple of articles I wanted to share with you. First one from Rachel Alexander Canberra. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. And she recommends this National School Week, let's celebrate a return to founding principles. Rachel writes, the school choice policies sweeping the nation may be among the most innovative and promising enacted in recent memory. Yet they also embody a return to principles first enshrined in American law nearly 400 years ago. Now, she harkens back to 1642 when the Massachusetts Bay Colony crafted the nation's first education law. And its objective was clear. Parents must educate their children. Echoing Moses' exhortation to Israelite parents to teach their children and their children's children the statutes and decrees of the Lord, the law recognized not just the grave importance of a good education, of singular behoof and benefit to any commonwealth, but how parents are uniquely positioned to deliver this benefit. Education entails more than preparation for the workforce, after all. It entails the cultivation of virtue, both intellectual and moral, To educate children in this way, to form their minds and shape their souls, demands knowledge of their souls. Which is to say it requires love. And no one loves a child more than his or her parents. Consider how much the dignity and happiness of your children, both in time and in eternity, depend upon your care and fidelity. Founding-era preacher Nathaniel Eamons reminded Massachusetts parents of this nearly a century after the first education law passed. And let the ties of nature, he said, and the authority of God and your own solemn vows engage you to cultivate and embellish their opening minds in every branch of useful and ornamental knowledge. So, Rachel says, in keeping with these natural ties, the 1642 law charged parents, not state bureaucrats, with the duty to ensure that their children learn not only how to provide for themselves, whether through farming or some other trade, but also how to think for themselves, which requires the literacy skills necessary to read and understand texts of history, law, religion, and philosophy, among others. Should parents neglect this natural duty? The Massachusetts law continued, they would face legal consequences incurring fines for initial offenses. Prolonged negligence, however, would up the ante. Children whose parents refused to educate them would be placed with government-appointed teachers. Such was the pedagogical vision of our nation's earliest lawmakers. Education begins in the home with parents possessing both the right and the responsibility to direct their children's education only exceptional circumstances would warrant governmental intrusion into this emphatically familial affair. In this, the Massachusetts colony's 17th century education policies embodied the truth that human law ought to reflect and assist the natural law, rather than seek to undermine or replace it. As future President Calvin Coolidge reminded another set of Massachusetts lawmakers in 1914, almost three centuries later, men do not make laws, they do but discover them. Now, this law ought not to supplant parents in their natural role as primary educators of their children, but to encourage and, where possible, facilitate this noble endeavor. But for far too long, modern lawmakers and administrators have perverted this natural order, insisting on government-run schooling as the rule rather than the exception, while suppressing parental involvement and stigmatizing home-based education as backward. Thanks to the school choice movement's tireless efforts, in several states, those days are finally coming to an end. Now there's more to this article. I'm going to let you discover it on your own because I want to shift gears and offer also a little bit of an alternative viewpoint here. And this is from my friend Thomas L. Knapp. On the subject of school choice, he rightly points out that if school choice, real, authentic school choice is going to happen, there first must be a separation of school and state. This is an article titled Another Year, Another Fake School Choice Week. Thomas writes, Yes, folks, it's that time again. Each year, the final week of January features a campaign of punditry, analysis, and cheerleading centered around National School Choice Week. And so he asks, What is school choice? In theory, it's a utopian something-for-nothing scenario in which every student gets the education he, she, he, she or other pronoun chooses. But he says, In fact... School choice as promoted robs most stakeholders, most students, most parents, most educators, and all taxpayers of meaningful choice. The usual vehicles for school choice are vouchers, which can be used to pay tuition, or tax credits that can be used to defray tuition at approved schools, or in some cases to buy approved homeschool curricula. Now he says the key word there is approved, which is where choice gets shut down. Public, that is, government-run schools, including charter schools, are naturally approved. Sending a student there is characterized as parents taking their tax money to the magnet school down the road instead of the troubled school nearer their homes. But in both cases, they just get the government-approved courses of instruction for their children. Private schools and privately sold homeschool curricula are only eligible to enroll students using that voucher or tax credit money if... They also teach the government-approved versions of the government-approved subjects. Do you see his point? Educationally, school choice turns every school-slash-curriculum into a single McDonald's combo meal. You can have anything you want to eat as long as it's a Big Mac. No matter where you go, you get the same burger cooked and served the same way. Unless you have a strong preference for one school's football team or architectural style over another, you might as well just flip a coin. Whee! Choice! Now, as for those taxpayers, he says, who don't happen to have children in need of education, they get no choice at all in the matter. Their job is to cough up and shut up. The usual argument from libertarians who've fallen for the school choice scam is that at least it's a step in the right direction, but he says it isn't. Turning every private or home educational option into a uniform, standardized, government-approved educational option, the only real difference being how books are kept reduces actual choice. It also caps educational quality and therefore potential student achievement at whatever dismally low-level politicians and bureaucrats can agree on. And here's the home-run line. Real school choice requires separation of education and state. Anything less is just screwing around and screwing the kids. Now, I get that's not going to be a popular viewpoint for some people. That's, uh, that is probably That's probably going to make some people get a little bit upset. But I think he's right. And, there, you know, this is, I know that I have many friends who are really in favor of vouchers. But if the money has to pass through government hands before it gets to you so that you can put it to use to, you know, best pursue your, your child's education... It's going to come with strings attached. Nothing that passes through government hands is going to come to you without some conditions being attached to it. So don't be fooled. Separation of education and state is what has to happen in the same way that we have separation of religion and state. And the crazy thing is most of us have been raised, do I, do I say raised? No, we've been conditioned to believe that, but it's not legitimate. If, if the government isn't the one administering this, you know, then, then somehow it's going to be a complete failure. And that's when you have to stop and ask yourself, okay, but what about the system of so-called public schooling, government schooling in America? And I'm just asking this question. I'm not trying to lord my vast knowledge, which I don't have over you. But where exactly did that uh, public education system come from? What exactly did Horace Mann pick up on when he went to visit Prussia back in the 1840s and then brought back his findings to the U.S. to help institute a system of public, meaning government-run education? How was it sold to the states as they joined the Union? How did it become compulsory? meaning that the states that adopted it not only wrote it into their state constitutions, but they actually insisted, you will send your children to a public school or we will come and put the parents in jail. What was it about the Prussian system that so enthralled Horace Mann, who at the time was the director of public education for the Boston school system? Again, back in the 1840s. Now, some of you might actually know the answers to these questions. For those who don't, I'm going to just ask, take a closer look. What you'll find is that there was education, real education, taking place in America prior to the institution of government-run schools in which, you know, increasingly they, they address every single need, including a bunch of needs the kids don't have. Like normalizing things which clearly are not normal. Once you can start to answer some of those questions, you'll start to understand why the separation of state and education is essential if we want to reclaim the term education in the sense of not just knowledge, but character development as well.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show.